welcome to Infectious Info. This podcast is brought to you by the Infectious Disease Working Group from the University of Toronto. The Infectious Disease Working Group is a collaboration of public health graduate students who aim to improve public awareness on infectious diseases, including COVID-19. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at infectious underscore info. This podcast is funded by the University of Toronto Student Engagement Award, which supports student-led projects that contribute to building healthy, resilient, and equitable communities as part of our post-COVID recovery. So uh, Jacqueline Buckley is the One Health Research Coordinator at Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago. She has done extensive work on wild and domestic animal health in North and South America and in South Africa. She works to inspire people to appreciate the importance of animals and ecosystems as they relate to human health. And uh, thank you for joining us today, Jackie. Um, and so you, are, you work on the Chicago Rat Project through the Lincoln Park Zoo. Could you maybe tell us a bit about how this project came about? Yeah, yeah, sure. So yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks for thinking of Lincoln Park Zoo and the Chicago Rat Project while you were looking for someone to uh, be a disease ecologist for this chat. Uh, this project kind of came up very organically in the best way possible. In 2018, uh, Dr. Maureen Murray, who's our disease ecologist for uh, the zoo, kind of got a call from Rebecca Fife, who works for Landmark Pest Management. And she's been collaborating with the zoo for years and basically just asked Dr. Murray, hey, do you want... Um, couple of rat carcasses. And in the words of Dr. Murray, she said, what kind of disease ecologist would I be if I turned down a bunch of rat carcasses? So naturally she took that on and um, it kind of grew from there. And now it's a National Science Foundation grant where we're looking at how rats affect humans and how humans affect rats, which nestles really well at the Lincoln Park Zoo in, under two departments, one being their Urban Wildlife Institute and the other one being the Davy Center for Epidemiology. Wow. So this is like, this is a lot coming through just, just this initial impetus of a bunch of rat carcasses. Um, the Lincoln Park Zoo and the Chicago Rat Project kind of describe this as a rat ecology project. What is rat ecology? Yeah, what a great question. I mean, <laughs> I think it's really tough to pin down on what specifically rat ecology is, but it's everything about them, right? It's how far they can travel, uh, what we've learned about their eating habits, where they like to hang out, their gestation and uh, their breeding habits. So for the most part, rats will kind of hang out where they've got free room and board, right? Where they've got free harborage, where they get lots of food and where they can get it consistently. I joke about them being like college students because when I was in college, I would go wherever I could eat for free. So rats do that too. And in cities, you know, it happens to be where they can find all of those together. Rats are incredibly crafty. They can find any spot to, to make a home. Uh, but ultimately, they, like us, are, are part of the city and they're part of uh, our, the ecosystem that we share in cities. That's so interesting. So, like, one thing that sort of I'm very, like, I have a hard time kind of parsing whether rats could, would be considered domestic animals or wild animals in this sort of urban context. How do you, how do you approach this as a researcher? Yeah, I mean, some people do have rats as pets, and we have seen that before in the past, or when we've done surveys, we've asked people if they've had rats as pets, and if they say yes, then we say, just know for the duration of like the survey or the interview that we're not talking about rats as pets. But um, 
I would consider them to be part of our urban wildlife. They're a great part of our ecosystems. We love our raptors. We love our hawks or owls. And they are a wonderful food source for those animals as well. They help pollinate. They help seed dispersal. So um, I would consider them urban wildlife and a part of that. Uh, but of course, everyone there, we have found that there is a line that some people might draw between wildlife and pests and cities. That's interesting. Um, why are rats such an effective vector for disease? Yeah, <laughs> rats are incredibly smart. They're elusive. They can adapt to just about anywhere that they're at. But they also live in places where we're not. They're in, you know, they kind of hang out in areas where there might not be too much people traffic or they know to kind of hang back in that area. But they also sometimes are where a lot of our waste is, where that be um, our bodily waste or our true like trash and stuff like that, those kinds of waste. And I almost feel like when you're hanging out in those areas, you got uh, a lot of opportunities to kind of potentially pick up something. So that might be one of the reasons why I like that. They're also... Um, they can be territorial too. So there's lots of opportunities for them to kind of get in scuffles, scratches, bites, things like that. Uh, that can be opportunities for disease transmission between rats. Um, uh, so that's probably one of the multitude of reasons why rats could potentially be one of the things that we think about when we think of disease transmission. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, like rats have such a, like a historic association with disease as well. And like you say, they're just part of where people are, rats are. Um, I'm wondering, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the city of Chicago, could you maybe give us a bit of um, a lay of the land where your research is taking place? So there's, there's socioeconomic levels to it, but there's also the actual uh, urban geography and architectural um, and city planning and city services level, just so we can kind of get a picture of where this project's taking place. Yeah, for sure. So uh, Chicago is a really wonderfully old city. Um, lots of, obviously, you're kind of close-knit buildings, couple like condos, skyscrapers, everything in between, but also on the outskirts, you kind of have more of your single family homes. But Chicago also has over 8,000 acres of green spaces which is great, but you know, they can have some patches where there are a lot of wildlife where people can kind of go to parks and hang out there. And a lot of people really enjoy those green spaces. We have, um, are mostly known for like a lot of our rivers and that kind of go right through the city. Uh, so there's just so much that goes on in the city, but yeah, there are a lot of differences in terms of socioeconomic status, right? There's just like in any city, there's different corners of it. And there's so much diversity and so much culture too in Chicago. There are different neighborhoods that are really great for certain kinds of foods. And um, yeah, it's just a, it's a big, big melting pot. But when it comes to um, like what we're seeing in terms of uh, city engagement, we do have a lot of residents that do engage with city um, like services in terms of we have a 311 number that they can call for anything in terms of information or uh, like concerns. This can range from standing water complaints to rodent complaints um, and anything in between, really. So we do have that in place in a lot of our research. Sometimes we do kind of, you know, take advantage of the fact that our residents do engage with that and we can get some really good data with the residents that do, do want to engage with 311 data. For the Chicago Rat Project, you guys also have been working with... Um like private pest management companies. And I'm wondering if you could speak to like what they're bringing to this project that's unique from what a traditional um, research group would bring. Yeah, working with pest management companies has been, I think, great. Uh, but like what happens is that there are obviously pest management companies that go across uh, the city of Chicago. And unfortunately when wildlife happens to go into homes um, of people, 
they complain they luckily have the funds to be able to call a pest management company out. So we are aware that not everyone has this virtue to be able to call and have a pest management company come out and handle certain pest things. But um, they do um, humanely euthanize those animals that are on property. And instead of those animals uh, that the carcass being disposed of, we kind of ask for, hey, let's get some, some science out of what's going on here. So they luckily are able to donate those carcasses to us and we're able to look for anything really. You're currently investigating a lot of your zoonotic diseases and rodenticides um, as well. So the, rat, the effect that humans have on wildlife. So rat poison that's put on and how that kind of works its way up the trophic cascade in terms of if it's not just rats, is it affecting other animals like raccoons, opossums, skunks? We are very much aware that in these cities, we do have some like hawks and that's almost like the more, the more like um, <clears throat> telling cases like seeing your raptors that are unfortunately have secondary rat poison because of the constant consuming of poisoned rats. So we're looking at what other urban wildlife are, are kind of facing this challenge as well. And what can we do to help you know, people in the area more likely exclude rodents from areas or wildlife from areas so that we don't have to go through this process of unfortunately having pest management companies have to come and um, dispose of these animals because we know they're Chicagoans too. They live in our cities and we do love our, our wildlife. Our urban wildlife make, make this city so great too. So we want to find other ways to make it so that we can have people still live in cities, enjoy wildlife, but hopefully exclude them from certain areas. We don't want to introduce any toxins or anything like that. So our research is focused on keeping people safe through looking at zoonotic diseases and uh, looking at that with urban wildlife. And then also um, looking how other alternatives that we can do to exclude wildlife from homes and areas that we don't want to so that people hopefully feel comfortable not having to introduce toxins into the environment and find other ways to exclude these wildlife safely. It reminds me of the... Um this sort of these, these trade-offs that, or the, the paradox that happens, um, speaking with Haiti earlier about toxoplasmosis uh, control, where in rural environments, you can, um, if you bring out cats, they control the mice population, but they introduce toxoplasmosis to the animals. And if you remove cats, you now have um, a much higher rodent population that requires pesticides or not pesticides, yeah, pesticides to get rid of. Um, and it's quite an interesting inverse here where, you know, you're, you're poisoning the rats to get rid of them, but this ultimately poisons the predators that are also getting rid of them. Yeah, I think a, a great example is uh, the state of California actually banned all rodenticides. And California, if you don't know, is a wonderful state for vineyards, for wine. And rodents technically really enjoy those, those plants. Why? Because they're so high in sugars and carbs as they're growing. And rats have an extremely high metabolism. So naturally, they need those to kind of keep growing. Um, so a lot of people who, you know, have vineyards wanted to keep those areas safe, but with the, you know, not being able to have rat bait being used or rat poison being used, they've made the habitat around their vineyards more welcoming to owls. And now they have owls as their pest control. And of course, a couple other like exclusionary things to kind of keep rats away from like the roots and whatnot. But I think that's a great testament to how, you know, collaborating with, um, you know, residents, knowing the needs of what people want, as well as being able to hear what the ecologists are doing and also keeping animals and people safe kind of can work together and still make this a, a profitable thing, right? Because wine is still great and people still get it from, from California, even with this. Amazing. It's so nice to hear that sometimes, uh, sometimes we can actually figure out a solution to a problem. Totally. Um, so 
your study mentions that rat populations are increasing in Chicago. And why, why is that? Yeah, it's, and now I will say it's tough to say that it's a great question. I think it's tough to say if populations themselves are truly increasing, because it's really hard to keep tabs rats, um, their gestation periods anywhere from 21 to 24 days. So every 24 days, there could be more and or there could be less. Um, but what we can say is that there is an increase in like Chicagoans working and making conceded efforts to work with their municipalities to report complaints. They're working with 311, but does that mean that every resident's doing it? No, you know, uh, we do know that there are some people that are very much like this is just part of living in a city. Sometimes you see rats, but other people are kind of thinking of, no, I shouldn't have to. So I'm going to report this every time that I see it. But rat complaints are up and there's a number of reasons why that can kind of be happening. One of the big ones is that there was a big peak during our stay at home order, which everyone was kind of hanging out at home and people saw a lot more wildlife, which is great. They got to see a lot more of your rabbits, your raccoons, all those those animals that we obviously love and people put out bird feeders and got to see more of that wildlife and say that, hey, you know, we may live in a city, but we've got a lot of really great wildlife right here in our backyard. But they may have also noticed that they may have been a little bit more rats. They may have seen that. They also may have had the time to make the the, the 311 call in. Um, but obviously that's a, a different uh, demographic of people, right? That's people that had the time to do this. They were, say, at home. That doesn't account for those that were essential workers that couldn't be home for that time. Um, and for people that maybe just didn't, um, that, that felt comfortable reporting this to, to the municipality. Some people might not feel that way. And to kind of combat that for this research or kind of like find that way, because we know that where there are no complaints, that doesn't mean there's no rats. There's probably rats there. Um, but then how do we engage that part of Chicago, right? It's such a diverse city. There's so many different, um, so many different demographics of people here, but some people might not feel comfortable reporting it to a city. So to do that, we really work with community organizations as well and neighborhood associations. We want to like maybe take a step back because we understand that there are some people who may not be comfortable reporting to government organizations. So, you know, being a zoo is great because people really love coming and seeing animals here. We're a free zoo too for the city. So there's a lot of already trust built in with that and working with neighborhood organizations and community organizations hopefully gives us a little bit of trust with those uh, different neighborhoods and making sure that they know that we're doing this to help them out and we wanna learn more about that. We also wanna bring their concerns to the table because ultimately we're bringing our reports to the city and kind of saying, hey, here are the areas that need more help, but we're, we're sitting with people all across Chicago, hearing their stories and saying, hey, these are your concerns. We're gonna bring them to the forefront. So thank you for sharing them with me. And hopefully that gives them, the people more trust in us as, as an organization to say, you know, we we chatted with them and this problem was resolved or at least kind of worked on, or, you know, I, I've met those people. It's putting more of a face to the project that we're doing. That's, you bring up such a key and important part of uh, participatory research and community-based research where you really are engaging, not just with like, we wanna do a thing, but also what do you need us to do yeah. and what are your priorities? I'm wondering through working with these communities, has anything come up that's really changed how you approached a certain aspect of the research or a focus of the research? I think with any research, you always have to know that you don't know everything about every area. There's no way you could. And the only way that you really can is just taking a, sit, a step back and just listening and hearing like, what, what do people need? What do they know? Because ultimately they know their community, they know their area, they know the people in their neighborhood, they know the, the wildlife in their neighborhood, they know how often things go by much better 
than I can or, or anyone on our team can. So really it's just sitting there and listening and hearing what they have to say. And even if it's just repeating it back is, as you know, so what I think I'm hearing you say is this, what would you like to see more of? And kind of asking those questions of um, what do you want to see? What can we do for you? What does that look like for you? Um, as opposed to, I mean, there are people who just want to, you know, talk about what's going on and, and their issues, but we're here to make it a real change when it comes to helping them and making them feel like they can trust us so, and, and letting them know that they can trust us. And here's how we're going to do this. And if this is a deliverable that you want, this is the best way that we can do it. If we can't do it all the way, let's find a, a spot where we can at least meet in the middle and show you that we are making a concerted effort to, to help and hear your concerns. Do you have any any like you know without giving away confidentiality or stigmatizing a neighborhood do you have any examples um like a very, very specific concrete things that really stood out to you as you were like oh we didn't think of it this way and we know how to implement something now yeah i mean um, i mean i think you you read the study is that like we've had a lot of concerns from like more affluent areas too when it comes to like more rat concerns we've seen them in more affluent areas but we also understand that those people also have the funds to be able to you know, make those repairs overnight and um, kind of call a pest management company out. So either neighborhood, either way, we've always been able to kind of give our recommendations and usually they will do it. But it is interesting to see that no matter where you go, who you talk to, everyone has a rat story. Everyone has some deep, deep connection to it, whether they've seen one, they've one has come across them on the street, they were startled by one, what have you, or they think they're cute, that, you know, it doesn't matter. Someone has a rat story regardless. So they'll give them their, their, um, some thoughts in terms of like how to exclude some things. Um, and we've also understood that not everyone had the funds for that. So then we've obviously collaborated with some other, um, organizations that work on exclusionary stuff and been able to give people some free materials to see how those things work. A lot of like human behavior practices. We've had people that have told us how they've kind of just rearranged their, their whole life to be able to avoid rats or, um, I think you've read the paper where I don't feel safe in my own backyard and people don't want to use their green spaces. And especially during a time during lockdown where we really couldn't go anywhere outside was where we wanted to be. And some people felt like they really couldn't even use their backyard or grill or those kinds of things. And there's a real mental health component too, that we also want to be able to address. So I think we've had so many stories. Um, so it's hard to just say, oh, there's this one, but for the most part, People want to feel heard. They want the resources that they can get, whether it's education, whether it's physical resources. And I feel like when we've been out there and kind of chatted with people, um, first off, the stories are, are, <laughs> are so great. Um, and it, the honestly, the lengths that people go to to ensure that they're safe, their family's safe, their pets are safe, and they're willing to, to take in as much knowledge as they can. Um, so we've even gotten tips from people when we've made our suggestions. So we've heard like, some people that um, might freeze a lot of their food that's, uh, they don't compost, but they could like freeze a lot of their food until it's like the day before trash comes out. And then they will put it out when trash comes out so that there's not, you know, a bag sitting in there in a trash can for a while, or, um, you know, just a variety of things that people have done to try to, to mitigate it. But um, ultimately people just really want to be heard. And, you know, luckily the zoo has a wonderful relationship with all Germanic offices and with the city. So, and like I said, we have a lot of great connections with neighborhood organizations too. So being able to, to do that has really, really helped us connect those people with the right resources that they need to, to be able to get to the next step of making them feel safer at home. Do you have a rat story? 
do I have a rat story? I'm like, oh my goodness. I think it's funny because I grew up in New York City and I almost never saw rats unless I was on the subway. Um, but I, and then my first, I think my first rat was when I moved to DC, um, seeing them go across the street. But I think my, I guess my favorite rat story was um, walking in downtown Boston and I was just by Fenway and there was just a big rat that I totally thought was like a cat and it was not. And I, of course, tried to approach it like a bad ecologist. I was like, what is that? And then sure enough, it was a rat. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> no, no, no. So that's, that's my rat story. <laughs> this is, yeah, rats are incredible because of this sort of, uh, yeah, they, we, they've been with us forever. Like why, why do you think people have such visceral reactions to rats? Yeah. Um, well, like I said, like everyone has a rat story. And I usually start my chats off asking if anyone in the room has ever seen a rat. And without a doubt, like most people's hands go up and they, and after chats, people want to come by and just talk about rats and what they've seen and what they've done. Uh, but I think media has a big uh, contribution in terms of how it's conditioned us to think of um, certain animals like rats, like snakes, like spiders, like bats. Um, you know, we hear these metaphors all the time, like this person is a rat or they ratted someone out, but we should really almost like learn to love the unloved animals of the world, right? We've got so much to, you know, give thanks to for all of the animals, like your snakes, like your spiders, like your, like your bats and like your rats. I mean, even in just a quick example is like the uh, medical research front, like rats have been so monumental in so much medical research that I feel like if we didn't at least give them a little bit of praise for the fact that they do uh, so much for helping our human medical advancements and um, then I feel like we'd be remiss not to say that but I think everyone's visceral reactions because we've kind of been taught to to feel that way but it is funny once people at least at the domestic when they have domestic rats or people who have to, you know them as pets or they're like oh they're not they're not so bad I'm like no they're they're incredibly smart and they are really really crafty and without a doubt when we've done our surveys, we had a couple like Likert scale questions from like strongly disagree to strongly agree. And there were things like rats are cute, rats are um, smart, rats bother me. And everyone, no matter how they felt, said that rats were smart. All of them were just, everyone has a story of trying to outsmart a rat and not winning. And that's, that's always great. And it's, I think, a very humbling experience for people to, uh, <laughs> to have that happen and understand that, yeah, you know, there's a reason why they've they've lasted this long and they've they they know where where they can hang out and they know what they can do and and they there's a reason that they're here for sure rats <laughs> um yeah thank you for that it really is yeah like they're they're um like we we know rats from fairy tales right like it's it's and then to realize that this animal really does have so many of these characteristics like not just the the filthiness we associate with garbage or whatever, but also like intelligence or quickness. So it seems counterintuitive that rat-borne diseases like leptospirosis is more common in high-income neighborhoods in Chicago, while low-income neighborhoods actually seem relatively unaffected when it comes to human health. Um, I'm wondering if this, this speaks to any differences in social determinants of health or like how, how did the like obviously unexpected findings. So how have you tried to understand them? Yeah, great question. It, it is hard to tell, um, but I will say with our research, we've gone a lot off of rat complaints. So very similarly, there's a lot of rat complaints in uh, some of your uh, more affluent areas and we don't have that many in our, you know, considered less affluent areas. 
but that, like I said before, it doesn't mean that there aren't rats there. It's, there could be a variety of factors that have people just maybe not reporting quite as much um, or whatnot, but um, hard to tell with that. I mean, Chicago, like I mentioned, is a beautifully old city. Um, sometimes there's a lot of older infrastructure too that could cause like some pooling of water, which like we know, leptospirosis is kind of great for those areas. And the 311 um, process that they have does also have opportunities for um, reporting standing water complaints as well. So that's very, very handy for us when we're looking at comparing those two. We luckily have that data, those, those data available. But um, thinking about diseases, especially zoonotic diseases with rats, um, if we try to think of it more as a like more affluent problem or less affluent problem, that's really not what we're trying to get at. It's more of a, it's an everyone problem and urgency funds and attention should be the same regardless of your socioeconomic status. But that being said, we also understand that like sometimes more affluent areas do have more funds to be able to address certain things quickly. And, you know, we do have, we are currently working on um, a paper about health equity and environmental justice in cities and what that kind of looks like. So I can definitely send you that one that's out, probably gonna be around 2020, like end of 2022, that'll be out. But um, yeah, it is, we do look at how it's very different in the city than it is, you know, in other areas. So that might be a little bit, um, there are some biases with people who do have more funds and less funds or, you know, have health insurance and can just run out for every little thing. Whereas some people can't do that as, as easily. So that is a thing that we are looking at with our project, which will be starting up this summer. We're looking at neighborhoods all across Chicago because, you know, no neighborhood is the same, which is beautiful about this city is that you can't, no corner is the same, no park is the same. So we wanna make sure that we really get a good representation across our beautiful city and really see the differences that we have here. So we, that's one thing we will be investigating for sure in um, our summer study. And then um, the paper that we're working on is more of just a general environmental justice, health equity in cities and what that looks like in different cities and what that's looked like historically too. This really draws together a lot of threads you've been kind of talking about through this conversation when you talk about um, the environmental justice piece in cities, because it sounds like, you know, like we we're seeing leptospirosis, which is a disease that has a lot of standing water issues. And of course, in these wealthier neighborhoods, it's not just the funds they have, but also the entitlement. And I don't mean that in a bad sense. I think everybody should be entitled to complain, but other neighborhoods may not have that, whether because they're undocumented or they feel that the city doesn't respect them. Um, I think that something I'm curious about, I mean, Chicago is, is one of the world's great cities when it comes to urban planning. Um, and when we talk about wealthy neighborhoods, are we speaking about the sort of John Hughes, um, you know, fast times at Ridgemont High style suburbia? Or are we talking about gentrification or is this neighborhoods that have always been designed that way that are urban and then we you know we can imagine you know private outdoor space but is there a difference in the way that green spaces are maintained or designed or located with across these neighborhoods yeah i think there we have seen um a little bit of more in other cities i mean we have a a great network that at, at Lincoln Park City that looks at cityscapes and urban wildlife across different cities called their Urban Wildlife Information Network, which is really great. And we do see that there are some, maybe some cities that have a little bit more green spaces that are more park spaces and how those are managed differently. And obviously um, when it comes to, I can't speak on behalf of what happens specifically at the city level for Chicago, uh, but from my understanding, it's that each, um, 
they're broken up into wards and those wards kind of have um, the funding to decide with how parks are managed and, and so on and so forth. So there is that, that kind of plays into your park services. When it comes to the housing structures, I mean, there are some, most of them are neighbor, are, are residential areas where we have anything from like your single family homes. Most of them are typically about three stories. Uh, some of them can be completely owned by one family or they're, you know, uh, rented out on three different floors. We had your big, big skyscrapers that are more, more in the downtown area. Um, but typically those are going to, what we're talking about in terms of like new construction would probably be done more in the more affluent areas. Not to say that isn't done in other areas throughout Chicago. I'm sure they're done just about everywhere. It just depends on owning and renting. Those are big issues too, you know, especially when there's more people who own their houses, maybe they put the funds into renovating their new houses if they're going to be living in there. Whereas it might be hard for certain renters to kind of, you know, we've all rented before and had an issue, whether it's not having hot water or, you know, something or a leak and whatnot. And then you're calling your landlord and they're just like, yeah, we'll get to it. You'll get to it. And you're just like, well, I'm renting. Like you should be getting here sooner. So sometimes those things do, do come into play. Um, and I think that's just an issue across all cities is that, you know, looking at different peoples and when it comes to how many, what the percentage of them that are renting versus owning and not necessarily the care of the people living in there are, but the urgency of the people who own it overall are, are attributing to that. It's, it's a little tough. I mean, it's everything's different with, across every city. Um, so it's a little bit of a tougher thing to truly figure out with what the true, um, into like the nitty gritty of like, what's the cause of it and what's, what's really getting at it. So as you've mentioned, it's really hard to kind of like pick a reason why there's increased complaints about rats. Like if this really does need an increase in population or whether it's just, you know, just more reports. Um, but one thing that has been interesting to note, um, so toxoplasmosis infections out on the West Coast uh, have increased sort of at the, like at the same time that the number of pet cats have increased and cats are very much a vector. Um, we know that dogs are also a vector for leptospirosis, although I'm not sure if, that, like, if that's transmission to human is in the same way. Um, do you think there's any relationship between increased pet ownership and the spread of these diseases? So like concurrent with rats? Yeah, great question. I mean, I feel like everyone loves their pets and their pets are their family for sure. And I mean, um, and when it comes to uh, pet ownership in general, I feel like there was a little bit of a pet boom, especially with uh, stay at home orders and whatnot. I mean, shelters were wonderfully being emptied out and you know, people were definitely stepping in with like, I'm home all day. I can have, I can foster a pet while this is going on. Um, and we do work with a lot of uh, community organizations and a lot of people that have pets. And I know a lot of times when we're at people ask us about diseases and, and whatnot with them, but you know, we always kind of advocate for like, you know, keep your pets inside kind of aspect. We are openly a conservation organization and we definitely want to keep um, our wild animals wild and keep those great pollinator species and birds safe. Um, but when it comes to like um, toxo spreading, like toxo can be go with any, any kind of cat, whether it is, and you can have it with your cats at your, in your home. Uh, now toxo in the environment, we're not super duper familiar with. For Chicago, we haven't truly investigated that all too well. So I really can't speak on, you know, urban cat populations and toxo in Chicago just because we haven't, we haven't investigated yet, but it doesn't mean that we can't do it in the future. Uh, so not yet. When it comes to lepto though, um, obviously a little bit different because dogs aren't um, stray or feral, right? Dogs are usually um, on leashes, at least here in Chicago. They're typically, there's a lot of them here. 
Um, and lepto can be transmitted. Usually the way that it works is think of it like a rainy day and the next day there's standing water. Um, insert raccoon opossum rat urinating into these water puddles. Your dog walks through it, comes home, licks its paws, walks around your house. Those kinds of things is how that can happen. And then like, if you have contact with your animal's urine is typically how that could happen. Uh, that's how that transmission can happen. But I mean, typically, you know, um, this is all happening outside. So it's not typically happening in the home, but uh, dogs can definitely get it. Now, if we can get it from our, our pets would be typically if we were exposed to that, our pet's urine. So that's how we would be. But luckily dogs all go outside for the most part. Um, but um, there are lots of ways that you would know and definitely contact your veterinarian if you're worried about your dog having lepto, typically uh, presents as like kidney issues. So your typical running your blood work every year, like most parent, uh, most pet parents do, is how you can kind of detect it, and it's pretty um, definitely treatable when it's caught early. So definitely looking out for for our, for babies. That's really good to know. Yeah, it's it's a disease that I think most of us haven't even heard of, and then to hear that it's uh, this like zoonotic disease in our cities is a bit surprising. Um, well, yeah, Jackie, this has been a really wonderful interview, and I think you've really uh, it's so interesting how a project about rats can touch on so many facets of urban life. And before we go, is the rat king real? Is the rat king real? Not that I know of. <laughs> okay, thank you, for, thank you for calming my fears. I'm sure the listeners will be reassured as well. Yeah, not unless it's the, uh, I mean, apparently that happened, but I mean, from the only rat king that I know of is the one Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's the only one. <laughs> okay. Okay. So it's all a fantasy. I, I can I can sleep. I can sleep now. <laughs> well, thank you again. Um, really appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, take care and be well. Alrighty. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye.